Amen. That's a good word. Thank you for it, Wayne. We'll get to it. We'll get to the text here in a second, but it's been several months since we've been in this book, and so I just want to give you a review of what we have done, at least the parts that you need to be a successful listener today. And after we've done a quick review, we'll do a preview of what you're going to hear today in this text. So here's your quick review. Uh, remember the audience and the purpose of this book. Whoever the writer of Hebrews is, he's identified a group, an audience, and it's Jews, so they have their whole lives uh, followed the law, gone to the temple. They've trusted in the priests and the sacrifices for their forgiveness of sins. That was their method of salvation, and they were good Jews following after Yahweh. But these Jews have concluded, after Jesus comes, they've concluded, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. These sacrifices in the temple and the priests and all these things we were doing, they were always pointed towards Jesus. We were promised a Messiah. Jesus has come, so we're trusting after him. We're going after Jesus now. And then these Jews concluded, all right, well, we found the Messiah. So that means all the stuff's going to be great now, right? It's going to be awesome. And instead, they still struggle with sin. Instead, they still have really hard times. Instead, they start to encounter Peter and Paul, and now Jesus' teachers teaching some really hard things. And now they're being tempted. I think I want to go back. I, I want to go back to the temple. I want to go back to the sacrifices. I want to go back to the priests. These, this is not what I expected when I started following Jesus. And so the writer is saying to them, don't go back. Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus in hard times and hard temptations and hard teachings. Just keep going forward. Go after Jesus. Don't go back to the old ways. That's been his theme. And so on analogy for us, he is writing to us. You're following Jesus. Don't go back. Anything you were trusting before, if you were trusting in your good works, if you were trusting in your family background, if you were just trusting in your idealized version of a God who's only love, always love, and is always going to accept you, if you have been counting on those things, don't go back. Keep going. Keep going towards Jesus. You're going to have hard times. You're going to be tempted by sin. There's going to be some rough stuff, but don't, don't go back to whatever you trusted in. Just keep going towards Jesus. That's the analogy for us. And so we get this command, keep going with Jesus, and then you might ask how. And thus far, our writer has told us this. Well, don't drift. Keep your hand on the wheel. Stay by the stuff you have been taught. He told us pay close attention to what you're learning in the Word and what you're learning here in this hour or when you're doing your own study. He's given them this command. Take care. How? By hearing Him. Hear the Word regularly. He gave the command. Exhort each other. That if we are going to stick with Jesus, we're going to need each other to encourage each other. Stick yeah. with Jesus. Don't go to those, those, lesser, those lesser priests that we, talk about, we talked about in one sermon. He said, don't neglect this great salvation. Stick together. Stick with Christ. Because as you, as you go forward, you, you'll be able to rest in Christ for everything. Those have been his commands. Now, leading up to verse 11, here's what he started to say. He started to tell these, Jew, these Jews... Man, Jesus, he's even better than your priests. That was the last sermon we did together. It was about Melchizedek, if you recall. And he says, man, your priests were awesome. I know you needed the priests because the priests were your only way to God. It wasn't like it for us. You know, we have, we just have, a, we have an audience with the king. They did not. They had to go through the priest. And so this writer is saying, yeah, your priest was great. He went through a thick curtain in a temple to get to God. Jesus is way better. He tore the curtain down. He tore time and space itself. He went to G he went to God with his sacrifice. Man, Jesus is great. He's awesome. But, man, I'd love to tell you about this, but you are so dull of hearing. Yeah. And he gets back to it. He gets back later in, ch in chapter 7. He'll complete his thought, but what we're about to read is his interruption. He wanted to tell them about how awesome Jesus was as a priest, but he says, i got to stop because you're not ready for it. So that's the review. Here's the preview. Here's the three things we're going to see today in the text. We're going to start first with the problem of immaturity. The problem of immaturity. I want to give you this preview. I need to say some hard things during that time. I need to say some hard things about immaturity in this room, spiritual immaturity. But we're not going to stay there. I'm not sorry for saying them. The text calls me to say them. we got to say some hard stuff about being spiritually immature. But we're not going to leave you there. Then point two will be the path to maturity. So if we recognize we have a problem with immaturity, the text then gives us our path. There's a solution. I don't have to stay immature. And then I wrote it down originally as uh, the last part is that the danger of apostasy, but I'm a good Baptist, and so there's a synonym for danger that starts with a P. It's peril. So we're going to do the problem of immaturity, the path to maturity, the problem of immaturity, the path to maturity, and then the peril of apostasy. 
There's finally a warning in this text. Final word, and then we'll start. Usually, I just do the text, verse by verse by verse, and then I have a clear stop and say, all right, I I just have some thoughts about this, some ways to apply it. We're not going to do it that way this time. I'm going to go text, application, text, application, text, application. We're doing application the whole time as we go, so that at the end, I just have a very short exhortation when we're finished with the text. All right, that's your preview. That's your review. I think we're ready. Let's do it. Chapter 5, verse 11. About this, Jesus being a great high priest, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why is it hard? You have become dull of hearing. We will pause briefly on this one. He's struggling to communicate how awesome Jesus is, his better high priest, about what he's going to say, that Jesus is uh, even better than this Melchizedek guy. He was better than Abraham. I got a lot I want to say about it, but you guys are dull of hearing. That word is also translated dull as sluggish in some other translations. To give it to our best modern day language, I think the word would be lazy. That's the one you would best understand. He's saying, I can't explain it to you because you guys have become lazy. There, when I first hear the word dull, I just think of something as not capable. It's not sharp or it's not been, it's not been practiced or prepared. He's, say, he's saying it's not that. It's not that you lack aptitude. It's that you lack motivation. You have what you need. You just don't use it. You're not motivated to grow up. You become dull of hearing. That might not be true, everybody, in this room. It's not. But it might be true of some of you. It's worth asking. Have I just become lazy about growing up in maturity in spiritual things? Verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Let's pause here for a little while. He's saying you've had time to grow up. You just won't. You're lazy. That you have had enough time of following Jesus that you ought to be teachers. That word does not mean pastors. It just means, because not everyone in here should pursue that. But it is saying you've been following Jesus long enough that you should be able to teach somebody something about spiritual things. You shouldn't need to rebuild foundations and go back over the basics over and over again. You've been believing long enough, and most of us have in this room, to be able to teach someone else about spiritual maturity and the deeper things of God. Now, quick pause on basic principles. He has here the basic principles of the oracles of God. I'm going to talk about it more in depth later. I just want to give a quick word. I never want to denigrate the basics. The basics are awesome. I heard uh, one one preacher illustrate it this way. uh, On a house, we build a foundation, but then we don't camp on it. We actually build the house on it. So we have our foundations. Think of the foundations as the gospel. The gospel is the foundation that God is holy and you are not, and that's a gigantic problem for you. And Jesus is who solves that problem, satisfying God's holiness and God's demand for wrath on sin, giving you his righteousness. Those are the basics. And don't, oh, let me say it, don't ever get over it. Never get over the basics. They are the foundations on which every other Christian truth gets built. But I do, I'll tell you this, and we'll talk about it again more later. The more you understand the basics, the more you're going to want to learn. The deeper you get into just those three truths, God is holy, I'm sinful, and Jesus is sufficient to solve that problem, the more you're going to want to learn of those truths and the truths connected to them. I found this to be the case for me and when I was learning keys. I think you probably have something similar, that when you're learning something new, it's... It's largely miserable. Learning something new is hard. You're just being exposed to how bad you are at a given thing. But there's there's a moment, I remember it, where I kind of just got it. Something clicked that I could just play, I could play all of these chords. Can't do much more than that, but I can play all of these chords. And from there, this is back when Shakai and I were living together, he could testify to this. I wouldn't stop playing the thing after that. It was so exhilarating to break through and learn a little of the basics. I gotta just keep playing because it's exciting. I've learned it. Listen, if you'll stick with the basics and dwell on those, it becomes quite the pleasure to want to learn more. So I don't want to denigrate the basics. They're very important. Never get over the basics. Never get over the gospel. But we want to build on it. We don't want to stay there. And then he says this. It sounds insulting. He says, you need milk. When he's saying that to you, or to these readers, he is saying, you're such babies. I don't ever want to insult you. I never would. But that's what the text is doing. It is challenging you, but it's not insulting you. He's saying 
to these Hebrew readers, maybe he's saying to you, you're such babies. It's, you need to grow up spiritually because it's good to grow up. We want you to grow up spiritually. Staying in infancy, staying in that kind of immaturity is not healthy. I actually thought of a lot of illustrations on this because this, this illustration he's given, you need milk when you should be eating solid food. It does a lot of good work for us. It's actually a brilliant illustration. I'm going to build out a lot of it right now. For example, if we went today after church and to a, to a restaurant and I wasn't paying attention, you know, we just got checked in, sat down at the table, start looking through the menu and I look up and I start to notice there are no plates and cups in here. The tables don't have those. And then someone walks by, a waiter walks by with a tray and on that tray is a bunch of bottles. And then I start noticing that waiters and waitresses are putting bottles of formula on tables and grown men and grown women start drinking out of those bottles. I'm going to say to my wife, we're leaving now. Something weird's going on in here. Something disordered is going on in here and we're getting on out. We're not going to be we're not going to be here at the bottle drinking place because we know something's wrong. If you stayed in this kind of infancy, something is broken. I, I don't want to push it too hard, but consider the illustration he is actually giving you. I give you the illustration of bottles. That was not the primary method of milk drinking for children to the original reader. He's giving a very stark view here of infancy. And it's sad. It's sad when people don't grow up. It's sad when we see even in this broken world, it might even be a physical malady or a mental development. Maybe it's emotional stuntedness because of trauma. These are things that we know in the new heavens and the new earth, they go away. But when we see it, when we see stunted growth, it's, it's a sad thing. We don't want it. We want things to grow. We want you to grow. I thought of this illustration because it's the most popular sitcom in the history of humanity. And probably all of you are going to identify with this illustration. Uh, we went through the old uh, sitcom Friends together. And I watched it in the 90s, but there was one episode that popped into my mind when I was thinking about how disordered it is to not grow up, to not mature. In the show, one of the main characters, Monica, she is uh, in New York City now. She's 10 years after high school graduation, and she happens to run into the most popular guy from senior year of high school, back when they were 17. And back then in high school, he, his name was Chip Matthews, he never gave her any attention back in high school, but now he's really into her. And so they go out on a date and she's excited. You know, she's now 27, getting to go out with the most popular guy in school. And throughout that conversation, you find out Chip Matthews has the same job at the movie theater. He still lives with his parents. He has all the same friends. He drives the same car. And while it's comical and funny, we are also, why is it comical and funny? Because we, the watcher go, that's not good. You never left high school. Something went wrong here. You stayed in your immaturity. You stayed in, in this case, infancy. We don't want that for you. We don't want you to be Chip Matthews from Friends. We don't want you to be drinking out of bottles. We want you to grow up because growing up is good. And if you're going to grow up, you're going to need to eat. Eat solid food, deep things of the world. Other, excuse me, other deep things of the word. Otherwise, or else... You're just going to be big babies your whole spiritual life. We want to see that for you because we, we want you to have the ability to take in good Bible teaching. I don't know if you've noticed around here, we don't serve spiritual milk. I gave you a 50-minute sermon on a guy named Melchizedek. We spent 90 minutes three times in a row in this room talking about the most difficult laws of God to understand there is. We don't serve a lot of milk here. We are a solid food preaching church, and we want you to take that in. I thought this illustration does so much work, or this example of solid food versus milk. I, I think that's the case going on right now on stages all over the country this morning for pastors of big spectacle churches, the churches that put on a gigantic, awesome show. It's very engaging entertaining. But why are they doing that? They're doing that and serving a lot of spiritual maturity in milk because their pews are full of babies. And you gotta just give them, you gotta give them baby talk. You gotta give them the little goo goos and gagas instead of talking to them like adults. And what I want for you, even though I'm not gonna pretend it's not hard, sometimes clear exhortation is hard. Solitude is hard, but man, it's better for you. It's, new, it's better nutrition. You'll grow up. Amen. Now, I, I never did this with Caleb and Kobe, but I think I saw my dad do it once with them. And this is the old way of getting a baby to eat their food when they are being obstinate about it. You play a game, right? Open up. Here comes the airplane into the hangar, and you try to get him to eat. You know what that is? That's usually a lot of the games being played on church 
church stages at the gigantic places. They're just playing games to get you to open your mouth and drink some milk. But I don't want it for you. I want something better for you. I want some solid food for you. So we don't have to put on shows up here that you might be able to take in solid food. We want it for you. Growing up is good. Maturity is good. We'll talk about how to get there in a second. I have two more statements. I want to bring you back to the problem. He said, you are mature because of your sluggishness, because of your laziness. Again, it's not their aptitude. It was apathy. They had the aptitude. They just were so apathetic about it. So I thought of another illustration because these are fun. Uh, we went on a one-year anniversary trip this month, and Kobe did an excellent job of staying with our dogs and taking care of them, all five of them. I thought I would make it easy for him uh, to, to feed the dogs because feeding five dogs is quite the operation. It's quite, uh, it's, there's a lot. So I prepped for him Ziploc bags, and I prepped for him Tupperware to make it really easy to go about feeding these five dogs. Well, it, let's say this didn't happen because he did an excellent, excellent job. He's an excellent young man. If I would have come in to the house and I'd have looked over to where I left all that prepackaged food, and it was all still there, but around the house or in the trash can, I, I found strewn about fast food bags. And I called Kobe and said, hey, man, what happened with the feeding the dogs? And he said back, that looked too complicated. I just got a bunch of burgers and fed him burgers all weekend. <laughs> I w- that problem wouldn't have been aptitude. He didn't do that. Again, good job, Kobe. It's, it would have been apathy. He would have looked at the pre-packaged nutrition and said, I don't want to do that. It looks complicated. I don't want to do it. And so I'm just going to do the easy thing instead. I am saying to you, we got pre-packaged good resources for you to grow up and get in. But you got to actually get it out of the bags. You actually got to use what's been packaged for you. Final statement, we'll go on to verse 13. There are two reasons most organisms do not grow if they are not growing. One is lack of nourishment. The other option is that it's dead. Dead things don't grow. So it's good today to do some assessment. Am I not growing spiritually? Am I the same spiritually right now as I was a year ago or two years ago? Am I, am I the same spiritually and not growing up because I just don't nourish myself with spiritual things? Or am I spiritually dead? If the, I want you to dwell on that because we have a great solution to that. I prayed all week that in this little 30-second part of this sermon that if the Lord wanted to convict a sinner, he'd do it. And that you do not leave this space today without taking care of that. That you don't say, don't leave without saying to someone you trust, I think I might be spiritually dead. And that's why I'm not growing. And then we can go through repentance of sin and having faith in Jesus. And you could start growing up. The, we celebrate all the births here, but there's no sweeter birth than a new birth in Christ. That's the one we're going to celebrate the most. So assess that. If you're not growing, are you just not getting nourishment? Or might you even just be spiritually dead? Verse 13. This is now the path to maturity. I think I've, I've probably beat up that horse, right? We all know immaturity is bad. All right, so how do, we, how do we get mature? Starting in verse 13 is our path to maturity. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment, here's key words, their powers of discernment trained by what? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Let's pause there. So how do, you get this, how do you get mature? I'll give you these two. Train your discernment and constantly practice. Train your discernment and then constantly practice spiritual disciplines and spiritual things. Here's an old adage of mine. I've been speaking in public for more than 20 years. I've said this to lots of people. Basically, nothing good happens on accident. It'll happen like twice in your life that something accidentally good happens. Most accidents don't go well. If you're going to have anything good in life, It takes a lot of work. Weeds grow on their own. Flowers take cultivation. Weeds grow on their own. Gardens take tilling. They take work. Bodies decay and break down. Health takes planning and work. Buildings break down and get dilapidated and infested by all kinds of little critters. If you don't do the the work of longevity and taking care of it, things naturally break down. If you want something good, it's going to take work. It's going to take training your discernment away from worldliness and getting to a biblical view of things. It's going to take constant practice and discipline to get to that spot where you're growing up. It will take effort. It's going to take constant use. It says constant practice here. I think the better translation is constant use. So instead of having apathy towards spiritual things, we're going to need diligence. 
We're going to need to want spiritual growth as much as we want marital health, financial stability, or the safety of your kids. You want marital health, and I think we all do. We do a pretty good job of that. And here, you make plans for each other. You check in on each other. You do thoughtful things for each other because you want marital health. You want financial stability. So you say no to things. You plan ahead. You save some money because you don't want to be financially unstable. You want the safety of your kids, so you're careful about what device you put in their hand, what friends you allow them to interact with. You want safety for them, so you plan ahead because you want your marriage to be in good, uh, to be healthy. You want your financial situation to be healthy. You want your kids to be safe. What we're going to need to do if we want spiritual maturity, we're going to need to want it. We're going to need to plan for it. So there's a correlation here. You'll get out of your relationship with God what you put into it. You, you already know that about your human relationships. You'll get out of your relationship with God with what you put into it. We went down to the South Carolina Baptist Convention a couple weeks ago, and I saw somebody with this T-shirt on that intrigued me. So I Googled it, and I, he, he is speaking my language. The T-shirt was just black with white numbers on it, and it was a fraction. It was 1 over 168. And so as I, I Googled it, it is a shirt, a shirt you can get in the Christian world that's supposed to illustrate the 168 hours you have in a week and the one you spend on spiritual things on Sunday morning. And that's such a stark thing. I need you to focus on that. If you're, if you're at Beachwood Church, you get 168 hours a week. I hope you sleep a good chunk of them. But in your waking hours, if you just do this, it's 1.5 over 168 because we're in here for about 90 minutes. If you had small group, core group, that week, now you're at, you're about three over, 160, uh, over 168, three out of your 168 hours. If you happen to come to preach club, then now you're at around four out of 168. I'm just, I'm just telling you, if, if those other hours, those other 164 hours are, in, are mostly filled with, yes, sleep and take care of your family, but then just a bunch of garbage you're bombarded with from what you stream and what you scroll how effective can those three or four hours be compared to the monster of hours you're spending being cultivated and discipled by, by ungodliness? Man, if, if we're going to get towards maturity, we're going to have to put some effort into it to take what God has for us because maturity is good. We're not, I am not pointing you towards uh, something that's not better than what you're leaving behind. If you leave behind childish worldliness, mature godliness is way better. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, if you'll leave these behind, what you're going forward to is better. Using your hours better for spiritual maturity. I wrote it down this way. It's similar to the Kobe illustration. If there's healthy food in the fridge, it does nothing for you. It takes you getting it out, preparing it, and eating it for it to be healthy. And all these Bible resources that are out there, they do nothing for you if you don't use them, if you don't eat. I know we live in the most distracted time ever because of the internet, but Western Christians, we have never been more equipped. I can just start giving you names. You can start YouTubing some people. Be careful with that. I'd love to recommend who you, who you start, start with. But getting, the word, getting in the Word yourself, hearing it preached more than one time a week, how, how, you know how much that would change conversations in here? The conversations we have in here are good. But it's often, I'm not denigrating this, I'm not condemning it, our conversations are mostly going to be what happened in a football game yesterday, maybe what happened at work this week, possibly something going on with our kids. Those are all those are good conversations. A movie we saw recently, all, all good, it helps build uh, friendship. Wouldn't it be incredible? If one of the genres of conversation that entered into the cycle of things we talk about is, I was listening to a sermon this week. Amen. I was reading this in this devotional this week. Have you thought about that? Yeah. What, how it would change yeah. our culture yeah. if one of the topics of conversation is not, for me it's often, can you, let me tell you about a thing I've heard on a podcast. For me, being able to say, oh, 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 I heard this in a sermon this week. You got to hear this. You got to hear how, how this truth that we all knew was so well illustrated this way. It would change us. You know what it would do? It would mature us. We'd grow up a little bit if we got if we got into that. So there's a path to maturity. It takes constant use. It takes diligent training, choosing it and wanting it. That's the other word I want to give you here. That word trained in your Bible is originally the word 
for the root word of gymnasium. It's gymnazo. You can think about that word, I guess, as like a workout gym. I think it works better, and some experts think it works better to think of it as the basketball gym or the volleyball gym where you practice with a team, where you're practicing for uh, an effort to put together, not just working your bodies. So what are you, I'm going to illustrate this to you from some of the experiences I had watching them play soccer when they were four or five. When you practice, you're often practicing to overcome your instincts. Example, uh, if you're watching good soccer, one of the things you'll see is good spacing. They've had the ability, they've practiced enough to know if the ball's right there and it goes that way, I need to go that way. I need to create space. But if you watch four-year-olds play soccer, it is just one glob of 22 kids all following the ball around and trying to all get the same ball. It doesn't look like good soccer. So then we have to train them. All right, your instinct is go get the ball. Yeah. Well, well, hold on. No, it's actually not your job. So the, let, let me, it's going to take probably 500 reps with a five-year-old. Don't chase the ball, yeah. right? Instead, when the ball goes that way, go that way. And then the ball goes that way, they're going to go after the ball. All right, bring them back. All right, listen. When the ball goes that way, go that way. And they're going to do it 500 times. They're just going to keep going to the ball. But man, by training, we can overcome their instincts. I saw it when they played t-ball. The, the, the ball goes a little bit outside of the uh, outfield and all nine people go towards the ball. Now, how works, guys? Someone's got to be on first to catch the ball. And so you have to teach them. Don't follow your instinct. Don't leave first and chase that ball down. Stay on first. We're going to throw you the ball if you just stay over there. So what are we practicing? What are we training out of them? We're training out of them their instincts because their instincts are broken. That's what we got to do for us. Listen, guys, I'll, I'm going to illustrate it later. But it's basically, it's basically impossible that we have been more discipled by biblical things than by worldly things. It takes a lot of work to get there. We grow up in the families we grow up in and the cultures we grow up in. And because we grew up with cable TV and then, and then these, we just soak in so much worldliness we don't even know it. Yeah. And it becomes our instinct. Our instinct is to respond in worldliness. It will take a lot of training not to respond with worldliness. Because your instincts, I get it because of how you've been trained. But when you interact with just a really difficult person at work and your first instinct is to bite back, either behind their back or right at them, it takes a lot of training to pull that back. It takes a whole lot of training that when your spouse has angered you, not to go tell your parents about it or talk to your girlfriends about it or your guy friends, it takes a lot of instinct to stop, to, a, lot of, excuse me, a lot of training to stop the instinct. I'm not gonna go do that. There are some of you who get either sad, lonely, you get into some kind of mood and that mood leads you to certain websites, it leads you to certain people, it leads you to certain habits that are destructive. Those are your instincts. Your instincts lead you to destructive things, and it's going to take a lot of training for you to stop that instinct because you've been so discipled in worldliness. I have been so discipled in worldliness. It's going to take a lot of training. It's going to take a lot of constant use of being maybe told 500 times. When you feel that way, don't go to that website. Instead, go to Jesus. When you feel this way about being looked over uh, being looked over at school or someone else gets an opportunity you wanted or someone gets married to somebody you, you wanted to, to be married to, young people, that's coming up on you soon. These experiences, instead of going to bitterness, that's my instinct. Instead of going to questioning God's plan, because that's my instinct. Instead of going to anger, because that's my instinct. My instinct is to blow up. i got to stop. And every time, I'm going to go to Jesus instead. I'm going to choose the spiritual discipline. How do I do that? Constant use, diligent training. Because it's easy to forget good habits. It's easy to go back to bad habits. It's going to take constant diligence. And if you'll do it, what you'll get is better. What you'll get is better. I'll get one more illustration of this. I suspect there's something at your job that you can do without thinking about it. It's just so natural now. It's the same level of mouse clicks on the same screen. It's the same key keyboard strokes over and over again. I think some of us have talked about it this way, that we drive to work, and you'll get to work sometimes, turn off the car and realize you have no idea how you got there. It's just, I don't know. Uh, I, I was so spaced out, and I've just done this so many times, I wasn't thinking about it, and yet I just got here to work. 
It becomes so natural. How does that happen? How does it get so natural to just do the same task over and over? Man, it takes like thousands and thousands of reps. Thousands and thousands of times of choosing not to follow your instincts and instead of choosing to follow godliness. It's going to take a lot of practice. I think I, I can illustrate to you, illustrate this best to you with Paul in Philippians 4. I'm going to read to you from Philippians 4, verse 11. Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned. Paul had to learn this. That takes practice. That takes diligence. So what did he learn? I have learned in whatever situation, hmm, so every situation, so a hard situation at work, a conflict in my family, an argument in my marriage, a, a, a rebellious kid, a financial stress. All right, what have, what have you learned? I have learned because I practiced in whatever situation that I am to be content. Verse 12 in Philippians 4, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, you think about your circumstances, in any and every circumstance, I have learned. The secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And those are all things we need, don't we? We need some contentment. We need gratefulness and patience and perspective. We need purity. Listen, these things won't be granted to you. You're going to have to learn them. If Paul had to learn them, I know i got to learn them. I'm going to have to learn to be content when I don't have what I thought I deserved. When I don't have the justice I thought I, I was, I was going to get when the, the person who did the wrong thing just seems to have gotten away with it, when I see those situations in every circumstance, I'm going to be content. When I have those feelings, my instincts have boiled up to tell me, God is not fair to you. You're not going to have what you need. You are being wronged. Oh, man, I'm just going to, i got to stop that instinct and trust. The Lord has been faithful to me. He'll be faithful to me in this. He'll be faithful to me to the, the next time. i got to learn to be content in whatever the Lord is doing whenever he does it. I'm, is that easy? <laughs> no. That's why Paul had to learn it. And if Paul had to learn it, you're going to have to learn it too. How would you learn it? Constant use. A lot of practice and training. We'll go pretty quick here through chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Just a couple more thoughts on this path to maturity. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and of the instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We'll pause there very briefly. Again, I already gave you the illustration. Um, that foundations for a house are great, but you want to build a house on it. You don't camp on the foundations. And so we want to start building the house. And he says here, you're going to have to leave the elementary doctrines. All right? We don't, again, we don't get over them. We don't get over the basics. We don't get over the elementary doctrine, doctrines. But we're going to have to learn past them. All right? So what are they? He gives us a list here. What are those elementary doctrines? One, it's, it looks like just Jesus' message. He says repentance from dead works and faith towards God. What did Jesus come on the scene preaching? Repent, repent and believe. Repent of your sins, have faith, the kingdom of God is at hand. So for the original reader, it might be repenting from thinking their works, what they did in the temple and their ceremonies, that that was their way of forgiveness of sins, but instead sticking with Jesus, not having faith in the old way, but instead having faith in Jesus, that's, that might be what it is for them. Uh, but I think, Brother Wayne, you, I think you mentioned this in your prayer. I think you were thinking of this. Repentance from dead works for us might just be rep repenting of the same old sins. Some of you have been repeating and repenting the same sins for months or years, and you keep going back to it. It's time to leave that. It's time to actually repent of that sin, agree with God about it, and go on and move on. It says it's the elementary things are about the instruction of washing and laying on of hands. Again, for them, it means something likely very different about how they view the temple and the old way of salvation. For us, that might be more uh, the, aesthetic, the aesthetics of worship, which songs we sing, what we do 
and here. Those are elementary doctrines. They're not unimportant, but they're not the things to stick on, to stick on how like a church service runs that we, we, we fight over that. He says the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgments. That's likely for them. They didn't understand uh, that there could be one person resurrected like Jesus was. Their idea of resurrection was one resurrection at the end. He's saying you, you, you got to get that one solved and, and, and move on to the truth. For us, that might be how we debate eschatology. These things are, that's the end times. Those things are important, but he's saying they are elementary elementary doctrines. We've got, we got to know them, and let's build on what we know. All right, so that's two things. Uh, the problem of immaturity and then our path to maturity, getting off of just the basic principles and the elementary doctrines and moving on to better things, how are we going to do it? Diligent work, and we're going to have to have constant practice training. That's how. Then we get to verses, starting in verse 4 here, the peril of apostasy. I was tempted to skip this or turn it into its own sermon because it is highly debated. Instead, I'm going to give you a fairly brief version of it, about five minutes on these verses. For a lot of people, these verses are troubling. There's some uh, some. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it any danger of doing it quickly because I'm just going to give you what I think is a, the best interpretation. But this is the peril of apostasy. And then his final verses here will, will bring the whole thing together. Verse 4, chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who, here comes a big list, in the case of those who once have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him, Jesus, in contempt. Quick pause here. Here are some of the some of the interpretations of this in various denominations. There are some that interpret it as someone who is a Christian following Jesus. They are what we say often saved. That this is them losing their salvation, backing out on Jesus. They were once a redeemed person. They stopped being a redeemed person uh, for lots of reasons, including not just the whole counsel of the Word of God, but even in this book, it's a really bad interpretation. I mean, he's talking in a minute. In a minute, he'll even affirm that he's talking to believers. But in, in this book is really a sermon. It would have been like ten minutes ago that he would have said, you are God's house. I mean, he's affirming I'm talking to believers. So it's not a losing your salvation passage. And then there are some that interpret it as totally hypothetical, that say this is just a hypothetical thing, that if somebody could, uh, who was truly saved, give up their salvation, then they couldn't come back. It's totally hypothetical. I don't think either one of those are correct, because again, the whole book is about encouragement to persevere. And so I would call this a warning to persevere. He's warning them, don't go back. Because salvation isn't that way. Salvation is that way. I'll illustrate it in two ways. Remember that he's talking to these Jews and has already several times in this book, he'll keep doing it, he will put them on analogy to the generation of Israel who left Egypt, wandered around in the desert for years, and then that next generation gets to go into the promised land as Doug has been preaching through the gospel, excuse me, uh, and Joshua. He is saying, I think, to them, if someone would have come through that experience coming out of Egypt, experiencing the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and the manna from heaven, he's tasted those things. If that man, then who's going towards the promised land, says, you know what, salvation isn't that way. I'm going back. I'm going back to Egypt. What he's saying is, well, yeah, there, there, there's no salvation that way. If you go back, you were never part of this group that was going forward. Your, your heart was always there. Don't go back. And to these Jews, it's a, it's a warning to persevere. Salvation's that way. It's Jesus. Don't turn around. Don't go back. Salvation isn't that way. Verse 7 and 8 will help clarify it even more. Verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. This is very close to Jesus' analogy of uh, the different types of soil. So the idea, idea here is really affirming for you, if you're the kind of ground that takes in the rain of God's word, and you're producing fruit, then God is sustaining you. 
If you can look at your life and you're, you're taking in the Word of God and you're seeing yourself repent of sins and grow in the Spirit, if you're seeing those things, then you are good ground that God is growing up fruit in. But the opposite, if, if there, is, there is the Word of God going into one, one soul, one heart, the ground, there's the illustration, and there is just rejection, and this person is not... This person's not, not of Christ. This person has, has not experienced salvation. So for you today, if you are seeing fruit, God is sustaining you. That's, this is a good thing to celebrate in today if you are that kind of ground. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. So he's even clarifying here that he is saying of them. We, we think the things that belong to you are the things of salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and the serving of the saints as you still do. He says here, this work that you're doing, it's fruit of your salvation, that you are good ground, that you're not turning back. And then finish it in 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the... Full assurance of hope, we'll talk about that a lot next week, until the end. So that you may not be, he wraps it up with that same word from the beginning, sluggish or lazy, but instead imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I hope you can see the connection to Pastor Doug's Joshua series here. He is saying that that, that generation that is going into their promises, the promised land, they got some work to do. They can't be lazy. They got to go conquer the, the wicked city of Ai and the wicked city of Jericho and the, the wicked peoples of Canaan land. They got to they gotta work. They can't be lazy. They can't be sluggish if they're going to take their promises, if they're going to inherit the promises God has given them. And then that's on analogy for you. If you're going to get the promises God has for you, a thriving marriage and godly kids and a godly next generation and a healthy church and growing churches, the promises he has for the church that Christ will reign even where you work, where your, where your city government is, where your governments are, where the entertainment centers are and the finance world are, every part of the world, if Christ is going to rule and reign everywhere, we're, we can't be sluggish. We just we can't be lazy. We're going to have to imitate like those folks that went over into promised land, we're going to have to work at our maturity. We're going to have to work at, getting, at, at obtaining the promises God gave us. So that is your problem of immaturity, your path to maturity, and your peril of apostasy. I now just have a few final exhortations for you. One is this. If you have some kind of conviction today and you think, yeah, I'm, I'm spiritually mature. I've not really grown spiritually in a while. What's my first step? Help me out, Corey. Don't just lay me bare and make me feel guilty. What do I do? Take your first step. Your first step is just repentance from your immaturity. Repent that you have been satisfied to stay where you are and express that desire. I want, I want to grow. I want to grow in the things of God. I thought about that this way as an encouragement. I wasn't present for Caleb, Kobe, for even Sophie's first steps for that matter. But I was around in the first days after they started walking. And I came to the conclusion then, those first days of walking for babies, we are very generous to call it walking. They are mostly falling. And instead of catching themselves with their hand, for the first time they're realizing they can catch themselves with their legs. And so they just put a leg out instead of falling. And then finally they do, they do fall. But when they were doing that, when they were coming to the maturity, the development of being able to walk, every time they did it, I didn't go, come on, guys, walk a little better. I was blown away and super happy. Like, yes, you're developing. You're learning to walk. And the next time you walk, you walked a little more. So I want you to know this of your heavenly father. If you want to get up and walk, he wants you to get up and walk. He doesn't want you to sit there in your spiritual infancy. You're probably going to stumble. It's not going to look great. Those first walks are ugly walks. But, man, we celebrate them. We celebrate those first ugly steps. So repent of your immaturity. Desire to grow up. And start taking some steps. Now, that sounds vague. All right, what? What steps? How can I actually do this? I sh now I just want to give you some, this is just me trying to give you some counsel, some steps to help you grow up. This is just some advice from one of your elders. We're, we have been through, almost 10 years ago now, a, a method of uh, presenting the gospel. It gave us five truths. 
Those five truths went like this. This is how we summed up the Bible. We're going to concentrate on these three and how to use them to grow up. Because the gospel is the basic elements. The gospel are those, those fundamental elementary doctrines we talked about. They're so deep, we can use them as tools to grow up. So here are those five uh, elements of the gospel. One is the holiness of God. And God is holy. He cannot be around sin. And he will judge sin because he's holy. We want a God who is just and right to, to punish sin. So God is holy. He's not like us. Two, not the holiness of God, but the sinfulness of man. I probably don't have to prove that to you, that we are a sinful people. And that's a problem for us because if God is holy and we are sinners, we can't be joined to God. Well, that's great news on the third point of this then. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is responded to by the sufficiency of Christ. That Christ is sufficient to satisfy God's demand for perfection because Jesus lived perfectly. And Jesus is sufficient to satisfy God's wrath on sin because he, would, he took the wrath of God on the cross. So we have the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ, and then our fourth, we have a response to that. That fourth one is the necessity of faith and repentance. What are you going to do with these three facts? If you respond in faith in Jesus and repenting of your sin, then you are entering into salvation. And the fifth one is the urgency of eternity. Whatever you're going to do, whatever decision you're going to make with these, these three things, you need to do it quick because you're running out of time. So there's the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ. Those are the three that I would point you toward in this way. If you will read about those, if you will dwell on those, if you will listen to sermons on those, I think you're going to grow. Because I think you might think you know the holiness of God. I think I might think I know God is holy. We don't get it. We just don't get it. I'm still blown away from that picture that we got in the Revelation series of these creatures around the throne of God that would absolutely terrify me. And then in God's presence, they are so subservient. Whew, what kind of God is that? If you want to know the holiness of God, can I point you towards reading, reading? I know this is hard. Read the major prophets. The major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Read those guys. You're going to get some big pictures of God. Go over to Job and read God's responses to Job when Job has some, some thoughts about how his life's going and read God's response. You're going to see how big God is and dwell on that. I thought about it this way as, as I was reading a psalm, some of the psalms about God's vastness. This is a couple years ago for me now. The way it came to me was, there's a little bird on a little branch in a remote part of Tibet right now with a stomach ache. And there's a star in a galaxy I don't know about exploding. And this God is sovereignly caring and knowing about both and everything in between. And then I think about Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? Who you're big. Think about, dwell on, read about. There's plenty of sermons and, 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 and other resources and books, but there's plenty of Bible about the holiness, the vastness, the perfection, the righteousness of God. I think we get some of that when we go through the law. When we go through the law and we see how holy God is, his demands, we're going to get a better... I'll start this way. You know what you'll do? You'll grow up. You'll see more. You'll mature in how holy God is. Two, the sinfulness of man. I think we would all give lip service. We would say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I don't think we know. I don't think we know how deep it is yet. I thought about one just for, for me recently. I'm 37. I've been in ministry for 10 years. I've been in church world my whole life. I came to a conclusion in the last couple weeks about my sinfulness We've been going through a really good show about, not about, but set in the 1870s in New York City. It's the high society in New York. And there's been some storylines where either it comes, to, it comes to public knowledge that some woman in, the, in New York City had one of her first kids before she was married. And they are scandalized by it. There is a storyline where one young lady might need to travel alone with her male boss, and they're not having it. They're just scandalized by the look of impropriety. The, the scandal with which they viewed these sexual improprieties, they are, I was blown away by it. And I started wondering, why am I not? When I see sexual sin so 
pervasive everywhere. Why am I not blown away by it? Because their attitude, well, on one, on one way, their attitude is terrible, and they have no way of redemption. They have no way to bring someone back in after an indiscretion. They're just, they, they throw them out. At the same time I saw in me, I should be really blown away by how pervasive sexual sin is. And started to ask myself, wait, okay, so why do I have this sinful idea? Why can I see sexual sin so pervasive and not be blown away like it, blown away like, like they were? And I came to the conclusion, because of the culture I grew up in, I'm going to, I'm a Baptist, so I did it in these three, uh, these three ways. It's because I probably was more formed by Saved by the Bell, Suits, and Seinfeld than I was formed by Psalms and Song of Solomon. I was 11, 12, 13 years old and just watching a show where four people, we never see it on screen, but says the Seinfeld, would talk about all the sexual relationships they were in with people they were not married, and they would change it all the time. And so I was desensitized because my culture desensitized me to serious sin. God's good design, this great gift that he gave us just being abused on my TV so that I stopped being scandalized by it. And then I saw this show where they were scandalized by it and realized I should probably have more of their attitude. Now, I shouldn't be a judgmental jerk and shun people forever because of sexual sin. But man, that's a, that's a thing I just saw in my own mind. I was so discipled by this world and I was wrong. And Lord, I don't want to be wrong one, one second longer than I got to be. So all I'm saying to you, you think you know your sinfulness. And if the Lord is faithful and he is, you know what you're going to find more and more over time is you had no idea. You had no idea what kind of sin is rooted deep in us. But man, if I'm dwelling on the holiness of God and how good he is, how, how righteous he is, and I'm, I'm dwelling on and reading about the depravity of man, I don't have to just sit there. The third part. Then I get to dwell on the sufficiency of Christ. And that this, this God made a way for me through his son, putting on flesh. He didn't make any of the mistakes I made. He doesn't have any rotten ideas from his culture. He just satisfied God's demand for perfection. And then all that sin and all the wrath that should be incurred on me, it's on Jesus. He was sufficient to take it. You know, if I keep thinking about those things, I might grow up. Growing up is good. It might change how you sing in here. As I was thinking about those, it's going to change the next time I know we sing His mercy is more. So, uh, Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh, this big, vast God who for no reason should even know I like, you put any purpose on me, should ignore my existence. Praise the Lord. Why? His mercy is more. What's his mercy more than? My sin? My vast sin? His mercy is more than that? This God has purposed that love on me? Yeah, I'm going to worship. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to let that fly the next time we sing it because I just grew up some by... Focusing on these things. That's my final call to you. Don't stay in immaturity and infancy. It's way better in maturity. Don't have that problem of immaturity. Get on the path. Constant practice. Be trained in righteousness that you might grow up. Because I'll say it one more time. Just growing up, it's good.